Part Three of Fort Concho, Its Why and Wherefore, by J. N. Gregory. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. With the coming of spring, things picked up. Mackenzie received orders in May to establish a camp of cavalry and infantry on the fresh fork of the Brazos, from which his cavalry should operate in pursuit of hostile Indians. He moved out of Fort Richardson in June, while Shafter at Fort Concho organized wagon trains and supplies, these coming from as far away as Fort Brown. He was to meet Mackenzie near the mouth of Blanco Canyon, where the base was to be established. By September 1872, Mackenzie and his cavalry had moved from Blanco Canyon to Fort Sumner, New Mexico, thence north to Fort Bascom, New Mexico, then southeasterly to Palo Duro Canyon, and south to his base camp at Blanco Canyon. He had found no Indians or Comancheros, but he had followed well-marked Comanchero trails across the Llano Estacado, and had no trouble in finding water holes. The staked plains were not nearly so tough as the high army echelons had been led to believe. Puzzled by the lack of Indians, he set out for the headwaters of the Red River, and on September 29 discovered a large camp on a tributary of the Red, northeast of Palo Duro. He immediately attacked with five companies of cavalry, routed the braves, burned 262 Indian lodges, and captured 127 women and children, and an estimated 3,000 head of horses. His own losses were light, if we accept the fact that the Indian braves returned that night and recovered all of their horses by stampeding them. Mackenzie never forgot that midnight raid. The drubbing had a salutary effect on the Indians. The captives were sent to Fort Concho for prisoner exchange, and many warriors sought safety on the reservations. Their chief, Satank, was dead, and Chief Satanta and Big Tree were in the penitentiary at Huntsville. The next spring the remaining 100 captive women and children at Fort Concho were delivered back to the reservation at Fort Sill, amid great rejoicing by the braves. They began to feel that the pale face was not such a bad hombre after all. Ebbets Haley says that some of the braves so seriously considered settling down that they even sent their women into the fields to see what work was like. Things now looked better, and the Indian lovers persuaded Governor Edmund J. Davis to issue pardons to Satanta and Big Tree. This infuriated General Sherman. That was in April of 1873. Trouble immediately started again. But meanwhile, Mackenzie had returned to Fort Concho, where he arrived in January of that year and set up the headquarters of the 4th Cavalry Regiment. Then, in March, the 4th itself left Fort Richardson for Concho, and the 7th Cavalry took over at Richardson. Footnote 8. When, at the Battle of the Little Bighorn in present Montana, June 25, 1876, General George A. Custer and his entire command were massacred by the Sioux Indians, that command was composed of elements of the 7th United States Cavalry. The massacre took place about three years after the 7th marched into Fort Richardson. There is no evidence of Custer having been at Richardson. At this time, he was probably somewhere on the Missouri River. End footnote. The 4th headed for Fort Concho, the same column, soldiers, wagons, wives, and their household plunder that had moved north to Richardson two years before. 
General Sherman had decided to do something about that other Texas frontier, the Rio Grande, and he wanted Mackenzie with his 4th Cavalry to handle the job. Things were not, and never had been, peaceful along the Rio Grande. It was another frontier with two parts, from Ringgold Barracks, opposite the Mexican city of Camargo, on down to the mouth of the Rio Grande, a man by the name of Juan Cortina, once a general in the Mexican army that had opposed General Zachary Taylor's invasion of Mexico, sought to make a living in the grand style. He was very successful as a bandit, and became the Robin Hood of his side of the border. During the Civil War, his banditry ceased. He became a traitor and did well because the Rio Grande became the only outlet of the Southern Confederacy. But with the close of the war, he resumed his favorite role as a bandit and declared that the Nueces River, and not the Rio Grande, was the border between his country and the United States. The result was that he and other lesser bandits overran the entire country from the Rio Grande to the Nueces, killed for the pleasure of killing, and drove into Mexico tens of thousands of Texas cattle. In 1875, one of his raids came within seven miles of Corpus Christi. Truly, his activities were as fearsome and as costly as were those of the Indians on the other frontiers of the state but the United States Army did little about it, being unable to catch raiders in Texas and unwilling to attack them in Mexico. The Texas Rangers, recreated in 1874, began to effectually take care of the matter. Thirty-one of these men, under their able commander, Captain Leander H. McNelly, began to take a bite out of these raiders in 1875, killing them not only in Texas, but pursuing and attacking them in Mexico itself. General Porfirio Diaz came to power in Mexico about this time, and ended the Cortina troubles by arresting and confining that gentleman to the environs of Mexico City. The rangers took care of the rest of the gangs. Along the upper Rio Grande, the raids into Texas were made by Indians, the Kickapoos, Lipans, and Apaches. These tribes had settled in that great arid and sparsely inhabited area that extends south of the Rio Grande from Laredo to El Paso. That part of Mexico was a no-man's land. The small Mexican and Indian villages were a law unto themselves. The Mexicans often joined the Indians on their raids, and the cattle and horses brought back found a ready market in the Mexican villages. The Lipans, like the Apaches, were natives of the Great Plains country. The Kickapoos were Easterners and had been termed friendly Indians upon their arrival west of the Mississippi River. The term friendly Indian, often used in writings and reports of the times, referred in the larger sense to those tribes such as the Kickapoos, Cherokees, Choctaws, Chickasaws, Seminoles, Delawares, and others that had once been powerful tribes in the eastern United States, but because of the encroachment of the white settlers, they had, by treaty, coercion, or force, during the early 1800s, been continually moved by the United States government from their ancestral or reservation lands in the east. They finally ended up at various times on reservations assigned to them in what is now Kansas and Oklahoma Indian Territory. Here they usually encountered hostility from the native tribes of the Great Plains, whose superior numbers threatened their entire existence. They were considered intruders and were obliged to turn to the United States troops, where possible, for protection. Their natural ability as trackers made them a necessary unit in any force of troops that sought to engage hostile Indians. 
The Seminoles from Florida were pretty well mixed with Negro blood upon their arrival in East Texas, and later in the Indian Territory. The reason for this was that prior to the Civil War, many runaway Negro slaves had sought and found sanctuary among these Indians, living at that time in the fastnesses of the Everglades. During the latter days of the Civil War, December of 1864, a company of frontier scouts out of Fort Belknap discovered a freshly abandoned Indian camp west of the ruins of old Fort Phantom Hill. The scouts estimated that perhaps 5,000 Indians had camped there. During the preceding fall, Comanche and Kiowa Indians in large numbers had broken up the settlements on the northern frontier in Young County. Therefore it was assumed, and assumed too hastily as it turned out, that these Indians had occupied the camp and were on the march to find a permanent spring and summer location from where they could further raid the settlements. Actually, these Indians were friendly Kickapoos from the Indian Territory, and as it turned out, they were probably peacefully moving themselves and their entire tribe to join a tiny remnant of the tribe that had, years before, settled in Old Mexico, some forty miles west of Laredo. The hasty assumption that these Indians were hostile led to the Battle of Dove Creek, fought on Sunday, the 8th of January, 1865. The scene of the battle was the Indian encampment on the south bank of Dove Creek, about three miles above its confluence with Spring Creek, and fifteen miles southwest of the present Tom Green County Courthouse. After the discovery of the abandoned camp near Phantom Hill, the Indians were trailed by scouts. Confederate regulars had been concentrated at Camp Colorado, and militia had been moved from Erath, Brown, Comanche, and Parker counties. These two columns of troops, numbering some 400 men, concentrated above the Indian encampment before daybreak. They attacked at daylight. It was an impetuous charge and was met by deadly fire from the infield rifles of 600 braves, well protected by the underbrush of the creek bottom. The militia, respectfully referred to by the regulars as the flop-eared militia, suffered heavily in their charge. They broke and fled, and were of no more value in the field. The regulars, now badly outnumbered and outflanked, were slowly forced back and withdrew towards Spring Creek, fighting from the shelters of the oak groves as they retired. This action continued all day, and they encamped that night with all their wounded and the reformed militia on Spring Creek, about eight miles from the original battleground. They left twenty-two dead on the field and carried away about forty wounded. The long retreat to the mouth of the Concho River started the next morning in a blinding snowstorm that made pursuit by the Indians impossible. They resorted to captured Indian ponies as food supply. It had been a most unfortunate affair. The Kickapoos crossed the Mexican border in the Eagle Pass area and settled down about forty miles inland always irked by memories of the unprovoked dove creek fight they thereafter heartily joined future raids into texas they were no longer friendly indians it was this matter of raids into texas in the upper rio grande country that attracted general sherman's attention in march of eighteen seventy three when he ordered colonel mackenzie and his fourth cavalry to fort concho from concho they moved to fort clark only about thirty miles from the mexican border at Fort Clark, a conference of high-ranking officials was held, including apparently the Secretary of War. 
General Phil Sheridan, Mackenzie, and others. No orders were issued, but after the conference was over, the brass reviewed the 4th Cavalry. The ten-year men in the regiment knew that something big was brewing. Dark and early on the morning of May 17, 1873, Colonel Mackenzie led 400 men of his 4th Cavalry and 20 or 30 Seminole scouts under Lieutenant John L. Bullis on a drive across the Rio Grande into Mexico. After four days and nights of continuous riding and fighting, the small expeditionary force, carrying their supplies in their pockets and with no time taken out for sleeping, recrossed the river and were back on friendly Texas soil. They had covered some 160 miles and had burned three Kickapoo and Lipan villages, killed a considerable number of braves, captured 40 women and children, plus the chief of the Lippins, and had driven the remainder of the tribes into the Santa Rosa Mountains. Washington and Mexico City both hit the ceiling over this invasion of a friendly nation. Mackenzie could show no written orders for the action. Had he failed, he would have been court-martialed, and he knew that beforehand. But President Grant stood by his officer, and the incident soon blew over. In fact, a year or two later, most of the remaining Kickapoos were persuaded to accept Uncle Sam's hospitality. They went from Mexico to Fort Sill by way of Fort Concho, and were given a cozy place on a reservation in the Indian Territory. Footnote 9. This action was not a pursuit following a fresh trail into Mexico. It was a carefully planned attack on Indian villages in that country, the locations of which had been accurately ascertained beforehand. Later on, during 1876 and 1877, Lieutenant John L. Bullis, acting under the command of Colonel Shafter, conducted six such raids into Mexico, all on the upper Rio Grande from Laredo to points southwest of the mouth of the Pecos River. Bullis was a very brave and competent soldier and was awarded a sword by the Texas legislature. Camp Bullis, near San Antonio, was named for him in 1917. End footnote. By this time it is apparent that our Colonel Mackenzie was the fair-haired boy of President Grant and Generals Sherman and Sheridan. During the Civil War, Grant had regarded him as his ablest young officer. Now, if things got out of line, you would simply dress on bobs. Truly, things were about to get out of line again some foolish policy of appeasement was still rampant in washington so satanta and big tree were released from the penitentiary this combined with other factors such as the restlessness of the indians on the reservations and the slaughter of the buffalo united the efforts of the comanche tribe along with the kiowas now aided by the cheyennes they started trouble all over again once more the raids during the spring of eighteen seventy four hit the texas frontier and as usual the soldiers while sleeping had their horses stolen buffalo hunters in their lonely camps on the panhandle plains were murdered and scalped just east of the old adobe walls ruins on the north side of the canadian river in what is now northeastern hutchison county twenty-eight men and one woman fortified themselves in three new adobe buildings that had just been completed as a trading post in anticipation of the northern migration of the great buffalo herds they had awakened before daylight on the morning of june twenty seventh eighteen seventy four by a sharp cracking noise 
the newly cut cottonwood ridge pole that supported the roof on one of the three buildings had settled and the sod-covered roof threatened to collapse at any moment fifteen men worked until daylight propping up the roof that accident saved the lives of all in the walls for just as daylight came being awake and outside they saw to the eastward an estimated seven hundred mounted indians riding hard for the settlement the attacking force was less than half a mile away when it deployed in a great converging arc billy dixon the buffalo hunter and frontier scout described the charge in a dramatic manner Quote, there was never a more splendidly barbaric sight in after years i was glad that i had seen it hundreds of warriors the flower of the fighting men of the southwestern plains tribes mounted upon their finest horses armed with guns and lances and carrying heavy shields of thick buffalo hide were coming like the wind over all was splashed the rich colors of red vermilion and ochre on the bodies of the men on the bodies of the running horses scalps dangled from bridles gorgeous war bonnets fluttered their plumes bright feathers dangled from the tails and manes of the horses and the bronzed half-naked bodies of the riders glittered with ornaments of silver and brass behind this headlong charging host stretched the plains on whose horizon the rising sun was lifting its morning fires the warriors seemed to emerge from this glorious background End quote. Life of Billy Dixon by Olive K. Dixon, the Southwest Press, Dallas, Texas. The three buildings were about equally manned by the whites. Doors were closed and then barricaded, as were the windows and transoms, by sacks of flour and grain. The first charge was broken up at the very walls of the building by the lead from the big buffalo guns. Thanks to the thick abode walls and to the dirt-covered roofs, there was no danger of being smoked out by fire. The fight raged until noon. Two of the whites, unable to reach the buildings, had been killed in the first onslaught. All of the horses and oxen were dead or driven away. The Indians had lost heavily and now withdrew out of range. They could be seen moving about in the distance, but they did not attack again. It was on the third day of the siege that Billy Dixon drew a bead on a mounted Indian, 1,538 yards away on a ridge, and shot him dead. He was firing a fifty caliber Sharps rifle, the largest of the buffalo guns. During the next two or three days, other buffalo hunters drifted into the walls until the garrison numbered about a hundred men. William Barclay, Bat Masterson, had been present since the beginning of the fight, and had, like most of the other defenders, distinguished himself by his cool behavior under fire. By the end of the sixth day, the Indians had broken up into bands, the Comanches under Quanna, the Kiowas under Lone Wolf, and the Cheyennes under Stone Calf and White Shield. These bands then proceeded to work over the other buffalo hunters on the south and central ranges. They accomplished their objective. Buffalo hunting by the whites was discontinued for that year. Down in San Antonio, General Christopher C. Auger, the department commander, Fully backed by General Sherman, ordered full-scale war. All Indians off their reservations were declared hostiles, and the campaign against them took the form of a real squeeze play. It was relentlessly carried out by a man-sized army under able lieutenants. Colonel Nelson A. Miles was ordered to march westerly out of Camp Supply in the Indian Territory. 
Colonel John Wynne Davidson was to move west out of Fort Sill. Major William R. Price was to move down the Canadian out of Fort Union, territory of New Mexico. Colonel G. P. Buell was to leave Fort Griffin, proceed north to the Red River, then move up that stream, and Colonel Mackenzie's command headed northwesterly out of Fort Concho for his old camping ground at Blanco Canyon. It appears that Colonel Grierson was left out altogether. The campaign got under way in the late summer of 1874. Colonel Mackenzie marched out of Fort Concho with eight companies of cavalry and three of infantry. He moved northwesterly up the North Concho River for his first objective, the camp at Blanco Canyon. Footnote 10. A regiment of cavalry on the Texas frontier after the Civil War could, at maximum strength, muster about 929 men. A company of maximum strength could muster about 90 men. A regiment of infantry varied in number more than a similar cavalry unit, and was smaller, mustering generally about 460 men, while a company varied from 25 or 30 men on up to 60 or 65 men. End footnote. Mackenzie appears to have been overall commander. However, the biography of Nelson A. Miles seems to give Miles considerable credit for subduing the Indians in our West. He was a volunteer in the Union Army during the Civil War, and rose to high rank, higher than that reached by Mackenzie. Biographies can often be misleading, parts of them being word-of-mouth stories from the principal himself. Miles could never have been called a modest man. Prior to his death, he followed the example of some of the pharaohs of Egyptian history, and built his mausoleum on the bank of a great river, in his case not the Nile, but the Potomac. It was perfectly legal to do this, the site chosen being in the Arlington National Cemetery, a place reserved for the remains of United States servicemen. However, the timing of the construction of the mausoleum, built even before he died, and the fact that he chose to plant himself, not only in the most prominent spot to be found, but right in what had once been General Robert E. Lee's front yard, leads one to believe he might have taken a slight advantage of his biographer. The campaign lasted until the latter part of December 1874, when, through ice and snow, Mackenzie's 4th Cavalry drifted into Fort Griffin. By this time the other commanders had accomplished their objectives and returned to their stations. The strategy had been simple enough. The commands from the north, east, and west were to drive the tribes towards the rough country and the canyons in the headwaters of the Red River, where Mackenzie, moving in from the south, would destroy them. The actual carrying out of the plans was, as usual, another thing. Variations in the weather were severe, drinking water was scarce, and when found usually had the same effects on the drinkers as would castor oil. Wood for fires was generally lacking, corn for horse was an eternal problem, and the long supply lines were constantly threatened by an alert enemy. But it all worked out as planned. The four commanders, Miles, Buell, Davidson, and Price, drove the tribes before them after spirited engagements. On October 9th, Buell, moving up the Red River, destroyed a camp of 400 lodges on the Salt Fork of that river. The usual plan of operation was for each commander to use his friendly Indian scouts as guides to locate a fresh Indian trail. After that, it was hard riding and, if possible, surprise attack on a village. 
Most of the supplies came from the nearest forts, such as Sill, Fort Bascom, New Mexico, and Camp Supply in the northwestern part of the Indian Territory, and Fort Griffin on the Brazos. It was during this campaign that plans were made to locate Fort Elliott as a new defense in the Panhandle. Footnote 11 Quote, a large trade has sprung up in western Texas in cattle, which are driven up into Kansas to the railroad at or near Fort Dodge. They go up by what is termed the Panhandle of Texas. Fort Elliott is established there for the purpose of aiding cattle merchants who buy cattle in Texas and drive them up to the railroad, and thence the cattle are taken to Ohio or Illinois and fed until spring when they are sent east the trade amounts to two or three hundred thousand annually end quote. statement of general w t sherman november twenty one eighteen seventy seven before the committee on military affairs in relation to the texas border troubles house of representatives forty fifth congress second session end footnote mackenzie's fourth cavalry moved many a weary mile his biggest indian fight occurred in the palo duro canyon where he surprised a large camp in late september and reported the capture of one thousand four hundred and twenty four ponies mules and colts remembering his past experience with captive horses he had the entire herd shot rather than risk the possibility of their recapture during the night by the braves this campaign broke up any further concerted action by the indian tribes it had been long in materializing, and that, to many, still seems hard to understand. Satanta was recaptured and sent back to the penitentiary at Huntsville, but ended it all a short time thereafter by jumping headfirst out of a second-story window. The other Kiowa chief, Big Tree, upon being captured and imprisoned, this time at Fort Sill, became a model prisoner. After gaining his freedom, he became the Kiowa's principal chief, caused a little trouble in 1890 that was squelched without bloodshed by the soldiers, and he then settled in a cottage near Mountain View, Oklahoma. He died a deacon in the Baptist Church, November 18, 1929. However much the Comanche tribes might by now be reduced in number, their spirits remained high and restless on their reservations. As late as 1878 and 1879, small war parties raided as deep into Texas as Fort McCabot, but there was no coordinated action. The extinction of the buffalo on our southern region was completed about 1878, and then the hunters turned in force against the remaining herds on the northern parts of the Great Plains. These herds lasted about four more years. The men in the forts could be, and were, still busy. Colonel Grierson took over at Concho in 1875. That same year, Colonel Shafter, with nine troops of the 10th Cavalry and two companies of infantry, left after rendezvousing at that post and headed for the Indian country near Blanco Canyon. His supply train consisted of 65 wagons drawn by six mule teams, a pack train of nearly 700 mules, and a beef herd. This was in July. Good rains had fallen and water holes were expected to be full. It took the expedition 17 days to cover the 180 miles. The author cannot verify the reported strength of the mule train. Only a few Indians were met, so Shafter divided his command. 
His own division, out of Fort Duncan, returned to that post about December 18, 1875, after having explored the country now known as the South Plains of Texas and New Mexico. One of his lieutenants, Geddes, leading a division from Mustang Springs, near present Midland, on south to cross the Pecos on a southwesterly course below Independence Creek, reached the Rio Grande. There they engaged in a small Indian fight, then retraced their steps to avoid the Great Canyon country, crossed the Pecos, and in a worn-out condition reached Fort Clark. Geddes then rested up and returned to Fort Concho. The entire expedition had explored and mapped what had been a vast and unknown area, and had encountered only a few wandering bands of Indians. It appeared that the Indian problems had at last been solved. However, the final settlement of that problem came in 1880. An Apache chief, one Victorio, long confined to a reservation in the territory of New Mexico, hit the warpath with all of his tribe and their belongings, warriors, squaws, papooses, and portable lodges. Colonel Grierson, now General Grierson, left Fort Concho and with detachments from Forts Concho, Stockton, Davis, and Quitman, sought to force an engagement in that wild and mountainous and desert land that lies on both sides of the Rio Grande, from El Paso on the west to the Davis Mountains on the east. The United States cavalry was no match for the elusive Victorio, who avoided any but guerrilla action and worked back and forth across the Rio Grande until Grierson, disgusted, returned to Fort Concho. His forces had not been allowed to cross into Mexico, and he thought that the Mexican forces, also chasing the Apaches, had not fully cooperated with him. This may or may not have been so, but the end of the new war came in the fall, when General Terrazas, then governor of Chihuahua, forced an engagement by trapping and surrounding the old chief. Only a few survivors were able to escape this well-planned but short campaign by the Mexican forces. The usefulness of the forts, so far as protection against the Indians was concerned, now ended. The accompanying map shows their relative locations and the dates on which they were organized and abandoned. Only one, Fort Bliss at the Paso del Norte, serves the United States Army at this time. Fort Concho remained active until 1889, but it was only another army post. Small parties of Indians roamed the frontier even in the 80s, but the Texas Rangers and the frontiersmen took care of them. Of all of those that were abandoned during the last century, Fort Concho is the best preserved. It took time to build it, and when finally abandoned, its lovely stone buildings and the land on which they stand reverted to the original landowners, Adams and Wicks, the United States Army having been only a rent-paying tenant. Just what do some of the others look like at this time? Fort Worth is covered somewhere under a modern city that bears its name. The foundations of old Fort Mason can be seen on a hill within the city limits of Mason the cut stones of its buildings having been removed for construction work elsewhere. The same goes for Old Lancaster, where only a few gaunt white limestone chimneys can be seen rising against the mesas. However, if you care to walk over to them, you will see the old foundations and a small graveyard. That is all that is left. 
if a comanche or kiowa indian observed fort phantom hill today for the first time he would probably name it many chimneys that do not smoke the buildings are gone and he would not be interested in their foundations some of the limestone houses at fort mcavitt are still being occupied and many of the other old fort buildings are outlined by roofless walls several of the original buildings of fort stockton still remain and have been converted into gracious homes fort davis is a line of stone and adobe shells the timbers of the overhanging porches being long gone except where the late andrew simmons restored a few and built a creditable museum in one building fort clark rising by the beautiful las moras springs is a combination of the old and the new having seen service in the last world war it is interesting to observe that in its case it is unfortunately the new and not the old that is missing the old spanish fort presidio on the san saba river enough of the rubble remains to outline the outer wall of the large courtyard this was a massive stone fortification and each of its four corners was protected by a protruding circular stone tower the state highway department has restored one of the towers and a part of the outer wall the old mission san saba de la cruz across and down the river from this presidio disappeared along with its administering priests during the great comanche attack against the spaniards and their apache allies back in seventeen fifty eight or thereabout the preservation of the existing buildings of fort concho and the restoration of the destroyed ones were begun in nineteen thirty by mrs genevra wood carson a gracious and far-sighted lady of san angelo she had already started the west texas museum in about nineteen twenty eight and it was located in the new tom green county courthouse where it soon outgrew its housing facilities she therefore turned her attention towards the old fort the original administration or ghq building of fort concho was privately owned but in excellent condition and it stood at the eastern end of the old quadrangle mr r wilbur brown senior of san angelo recognized the far-sightedness of mrs carson he bought the administration building from its owners and deeded it toward a museum of pioneer days and the preservation of old fort concho mrs carson then moved the museum collection from the courthouse into the administration building and changed the name of west texas museum to fort concho museum the history of fort concho since its abandonment in eighteen eighty nine when the garrison lowered the flag for the last time and marched away its band playing the girl i left behind me had not been spectacular it could easily have become a rock quarry as had lancaster mason and others actually some of the barracks buildings on the north side of the quadrangle did suffer that inglorious fate but the houses on officers row the administration building hospital and chapel were for many years the finest buildings in the surrounding area in 1905 the concho realty company was formed by certain citizens of san angelo and the fort grounds with all the structures were bought by the company from the adams and wicks estate for 
$15,000. A real estate addition was then organized and the various buildings sold to private individuals. The most elaborate of these had been the post hospital. It occupied a position outside and just off the southeast corner of the quadrangle. This building burned in 1910, and some years later its remaining stone walls, partitions, and chimneys were cleared away. End of Part 3